Well, good morning, church. It's an honor to be here with you. Oh, you came up right behind me. Look how fast you are, man. I don't care what they say. (laughs) Joy to be here with you this service and the next two, which, by the way, you're invited to because they will be a different topic building upon one another. So if you don't have your lunch plans already for Father's Day, hang around. We'd love to have you with us this morning. Uh, My name is Sean McDowell, and I teach at Biola University. Uh, full-time and also get to write and speak and uh, hang out with students a little bit. Well, I was in line not long ago waiting for a new version of the iPhone that came out. I live in uh, San Juan Capistrano, so I was at the Mission Viejo Mall, and I got there about 11 in the morning. I probably left about 3 in the afternoon with my phone because the line went out the store and down about three or four stores. So I'm sitting there waiting in line, and these three high school students come up to the guy right next to me. And they said, word for word, hey, we're talking about Jesus. What do you think? The guy doesn't say a single word. He turns around, leans on the railing, and completely ignores these students. So they're a little bit embarrassed, so they kind of gather themselves up a little bit, start to walk away. I stopped the guy. I said, hey, what are you doing? He said, well, we're talking about Jesus. What do you think? I said, you know what? I'm not even sure Jesus existed. Do you really believe that Christian stuff? He goes, yes, of course I do. Jesus died on the cross. He was raised on the third day. He starts preaching the gospel to me. I said, well, why should I believe that story? Pulls out his Bible. He goes, because it's right here in the Bible, which is the holy word of God. I said, why should I believe that book? He goes, well, if you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, it tells us that all scripture is inspired. I said, wait a minute. If we want to know if we can trust that book, can you really turn to a passage within that book, assuming it's true, to prove itself? He goes, good point. I said, do you have any evidence outside of that book telling us that book is true? He goes, yes. Don't you know there's these tens of thousands of ancient manuscripts that match up and tell us we have the Bible exactly as it was written down? I said, really? Do you know how many words are in the original Greek New Testament? And at this point, I know exactly what he was thinking. Why did I have to talk to this guy? He goes, no, I said about 135,000 words. And if you compare the different manuscripts that we have, you know there's between 300,000 and 400,000 differences across these manuscripts. That means for every word in the New Testament, there could be at least two or three other words. Can you explain that to me? He goes, "Um, uh, what do you think about evolution? I said, I'm glad you asked. The evidence is overwhelming. Don't you know we have vestigial structures left over from our ancestors who had tails? Haven't you seen homological similarities? Haven't you seen embryological development? I'm going on and on, and this guy's backing up, and his eyes are getting bigger and bigger. So finally I stopped. I said, you know, I got a confession to make. I'm a Christian. And I wish you could have seen this guy's response. He goes, oh. girl next to him looked genuinely bothered by this. She said, was all that true? I said, well, some of it, yeah, a lot of it I just made up. I said, look, good for you guys on a Saturday, out sharing your faith, like at the mall when you could be going to the beach. But don't you think if you're going to go tell people they should believe in this ancient book and don't believe this Darwinian story that you should have some good reason against it? And they agreed, went on their way. Ten minutes later, I'm standing there again in line. I feel a tap on the shoulder. I turn around, it's three new students who say, hey, we're talking about Jesus. So I start launching in my shred until I stop. And I see about as far back as the back of this room, the original students who set up their friends to go talk to the atheists. 
exactly what some of you probably would have done. Now, I admired these students. It was a, yeah, it was a Saturday morning in July out sharing their faith. But my goodness, if they're going to go challenge some ideas that people hold dearly, we better understand what we're talking about and have some good reason to think God wrote the Bible or that there's evidence for intelligent design. See, what often happens is young people are just told what to believe. They're never told why. They get challenged with other worldviews and it rocks them. Kind of like what happened to E.O. Wilson, a really well-accomplished scientist. He said, when I was 15, I entered the Southern Baptist Church with great fervor and interest in the fundamental religion. I left the 17 when I got to the University of Alabama and heard about evolutionary theory. So how as Christians can we think about this and approach this today? It's a very important question. Now, Dinesh D'Souza wrote an interesting book a few years ago. And he made a point about how evolution has become viewed in our culture more widely. He said, we have Darwinism, but not Keplerism. We encounter Darwinists, but no one describes himself as an Einsteinian. Darwinism has become an ideology. In other words, it's not just like gravity or plate tectonics, which is a scientific view, but all these other trappings related to worldview, where we come from, who we are, what it means human purpose in life, is tied to this scientific theory. It's become like an ideology. So there's a scientist, you may recognize his name, he's actually a philosopher, Daniel Dennett, a.k.a. Santa Claus, there he is. And I don't mean that in any derogatory term, but he's got the look, right? He's got the look. You know, when Christmas comes around, he gets a chance to play it. Well, he famously said that Darwinism is like a universal asset. In other words, he said, if this blind, purposeless view of evolution is true, it eats away all of our traditional views in its path. So I would share this with my students. I teach a bio, like I mentioned, but I also teach part-time at a Christian school. So I teach high school students in San Juan Capistrano. And I tell my students what they might expect when they get to the university about how a lot of the culture will see the world differently. And one girl emailed me back and she wrote this. She said, I've also been inundated with evolutionary theory. Oh my gosh, it's everywhere. My psychology class, my biology class. She went on and on about how this idea that we evolved through this blind, purposeless process was in all of her different classes. Now, it makes sense in biology. Of course you should learn it there. But why psychology? Why sociology? Why history? Because it's become the basis of an ideology, so to speak, or as Dennett said, a universal acid that eats away everything in its path. So this is why we have books like this, Why We Get Sick, The New Science of Darwinian Medicine, or Economics as an Evolutionary Science, or books like Evolutionary Jurisprudence, You Can Only Understand Law Through the Lens of Darwinism, or books like Religion Explained, The Evolutionary Origins of Religious Thought. Or how about this one? Literary Darwinism. You understand literature, you have to see it through the lens of Darwinism. Where it also shows up in popular culture. Now this show was like huge in the 90s, but it has unbelievable lasting power because of this technology called Netflix. TV show called Friends, where Ross discovers that Phoebe doubts evolution. And Ross says, uh, excuse me, evolution is not for you to buy, Phoebe. Evolution is scientific fact. Like, like, like the air we breathe, like gravity. This is the narrative that we're often told. 
Now, if, here's really the central question that it's important to ask. Are we accidental byproducts of blind forces in nature? Are we essentially an unplanned cosmic accident? Or are we the pinnacle of creation intended by a personal and a loving God? That's at the heart of the question. Now, I'm not saying that if you believe in evolution, you can't be a Christian. Of course, I'm not saying that. What I mean by evolution is the way it's often characterized as completely purposeless, blind, unguided, material explanation, apart from the idea that God exists and designed us. That's the heart of the way the story is often told. So if you look at worldviews, what kind of a belief system that everybody has, worldviews answer three questions. One is the origin. How do we get here? Every single worldview or belief system has some explanation for how and why we got here. And then second, the predicament. What went wrong? Why are things messed up? And then third, the resolution. Oops, how do we fix it? Every single belief system says, here's how we got here. Here's what's messed up. Here's how we fix it. So New Age says we've been a part of the God consciousness. Things got messed up because we forgot we're God. The resolution is remember that you're God. That's the New Age story. Or Buddhism, we've been a part of the cycle of samsara, and we suffer because we have desires. Resolution, follow the Eightfold Path, get rid of our desires. Well, Christianity tells a story that you know, right? In the beginning, God created. This is how the story starts. That you're not an accident, that God purposefully created us. The problem is what? We've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what's the resolution? Okay, if you don't know the answer to a question in church, just say Jesus. You'll get it right over half the time. My son actually just graduated kindergarten, and they had a little ceremony. And the head of the schools gave a little certificate, and he said, here's for your remarkable accomplishments so far. I'm like, remarkable accomplishments? Okay, and he said it with a straight face. But when my son was in kindergarten, this is where they learned to raise their hand and not blurt out an answer. So the first day of class, the teacher said, I'll ask an easy question. What's gray, has big bushy tail, and climbs in trees? None of his classmates raised their hand. They said, class, raise your hand, I'll call on you. What's gray, has big bushy tail, and climbs in trees? Nothing. She said, class, put your hand up, and then you give the answer. What's gray, has big bushy tail, and climbs in trees? Well, finally, my son's chain's classmate, little Johnny, sheepishly raised his hand in the back. She said, yes, Johnny. He said, I'll say Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. The Christian story, God created us. We rebelled against God, which is what we refer to as sin. And resolution is found through the free gift of salvation. A free gift of salvation through grace by faith in Jesus Christ. Now the Darwinian story, and again I mean the naturalistic understanding of this, is very different. So Victor Stanger says, Darwinism implies that humanity developed by accident. You weren't made by God. You're a cosmic accident. You weren't planned. The problem of the world is not sin. The problem is that evolution is kind of a clumsy process. It's not designed so things get hurt in the middle of it. And the solution is not God. The solution is we must solve our own problems, typically through science. Exactly. Through science. Because that's what studies the material, natural world. Now, Darwin himself was actually aware of the implications of this worldview. 
he wrote, he said, the view now held by most physicists is that the sun with all the planets will in time grow too cold for life. Unless indeed some great body dashes into the sun and thus gives it fresh life. Believe as I do that man in the distant future will be a far more perfect creature than he is now. Notice he doesn't say women. Women have already arrived. Men are trying to catch up. At least we can own this on Father's Day of all days. He says, it is an intolerable thought that he and all other sentient beings are doomed to complete annihilation after such a long, continued, slow progress. Friend, if there's no God, and we evolved through this blind, purposeless process, he's exactly right in terms of what awaits for us. Well, I wrote a book a few years ago with a, a double PhD, William Dembski. By the way, you know what you call somebody with two PhDs? Paradox. At least give me a real laugh on Father's Day, because my kids don't. We wrote a book on intelligent design, and one of the things my father taught me is anytime I look at an issue, whether politically, historically, scientifically, he'd always tell me, he'd say, son, read both sides. Try to find truth, even if it's inconvenient, believe it. One of the things that surprised me as I read so much in the world of this Darwinian idea was how many people said they don't believe God created the world but admitted the world looks as if it were designed. So perhaps the most famous atheist in the world, Richard Dawkins wrote a book, The Blind Watchmaker. He said, biology is a study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Well, something walks like a duck, eats like a duck, swims like a duck, and smells like a duck. Don't say Jesus. That's your chance. <laughs> Maybe that's because it's duck. Maybe the world looks designed to believers and unbelievers because it actually is designed. That should at least be a fair question. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because 2,000 years ago, look what David wrote. He said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hand. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. The natural world reveals truths about a designer. Now, when I wrote this book, we don't have time to go through all of these, but let's just look at three of them and three kind of practical, common examples of where many people would say that's a pointer towards design. Well, let's start in the world of physics. And imagine you come visit me, live in San Juan Capistrano, and there's some undeveloped land near where I live. And we go walking in the hills kind of behind where I live, and you see this abandoned cabin. You think, you know what, let's walk up and explore. So you walk up closer, you notice something strange. You hear the sound of your favorite song in the background. Beat It by Michael Jackson. <laughs> you think, well, I'll explore anyways. You walk in, you smell the scent of your most beloved meal. But then as you get closer, the doors open. You look down and you see shoes that are your size, a jacket that fits you perfectly. All the books you read are on the counter. You go over to the fridge, it's all the snacks you like. You walk over, there's a tiny bathroom. It's the exact toiletries you use. Now, besides suspecting you're in a horror movie, <laughs> what would you think? You think somebody has prepared this in advance. There's too many things set just right for my liking and my taste. This couldn't be chance. Well, interestingly, just in the past few decades, scientists have begun to realize that the parameters in both physics and cosmology in our universe are like this cabin. They're exquisitely organized within a small range 
to allow the emergence and sustenance of life. So Freeman Dyson, a well-accomplished physicist, says, as we look out in the universe and identify the many accidents of physics and astronomy that have worked to our benefit, it almost seems as if the universe must in some sense have known that we were coming. You see what it means? There's, there's laws of physics and cosmology that scientists say exist like on a razor's edge. And if the laws were changed the slightest to the left or the right, the entire universe would be inhospitable to life. So it's almost like Goldilocks' porridge, that's too hot, that's too cold, just right. We seem to live in a universe that's just right for the emergence and sustenance of life. In fact, many would say it looks like a put-up job. In fact, Frederick Hoyle, an agnostic astronomer who coined the term Big Bang, he said it almost seems as if somebody's monkeying with the laws of physics. This is why Paul Davies, a well-accomplished scientist, he says, the cliche that life is balanced on a knife edge is a staggering understatement in this case. No knife in the universe could have an edge that fine. Now, what exactly do we mean by this? Let me, let me give you an example that might, might help. So I mentioned that I teach at Biola University, and I went to Biola as an undergrad. And if you've ever, how many of you have been on Biola's campus at some point or another? Okay, quite a few of you have. On the back side of campus, towards La Mirada Boulevard, there's some graduate housing called Thompson and Welch and Lee. And typically, seniors are allowed in there. And my senior year, one of my friends was living there. So I went over one night, and we are hanging out. And he had this idea, because where these dormitories are, they're like about the third story high. There's a parking lot, tall row of trees, a huge gutter, and then a stop sign. And my friend got the great idea that he'd have a huge bucket full of water balloons and get one of those life-size, like, water balloon launchers. Have you ever seen these things that take, like, three people? They look like a huge rubber band. One person holds this side. The other person holds that side. And then you pull back, and you put, like, a water balloon, an egg, a cat or something, and you let it fly. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Shameless joke. I'll own it. Don't do that to animals. But you let it go, and you fling it, and it can go, like, I don't know, like, dozens or maybe 100 yards plus if you shoot it right. Well, he would go to his window and do this and think, how wonderful would it be if students are coming back, especially at night to campus, to get a welcome with a water balloon right on the windshield? Great idea, right? So we're hanging out. He goes, hey, McDowell, let's do this. Opens up his window. I remember holding one side. My other friend, who's now my brother-in-law, is holding the other side. And my buddy pulls back this water balloon and he lets it fly. Now think about how many things would have to get right to hit the target, right? There's a lot of things that could go wrong, but a lot of things that need to go right. Well, he lets it fly out the window. It goes flinging up in the air, goes across the parking lot, goes above the row of trees, clears the gutter. This small red car stops at the stop sign, bam, smacks it right in the windshield, shatters it. She has a heart attack. No, I'm kidding. It's not that bad. As messed up, you laughed at that, just for the record. It, you know, like the spider crack, it just goes up the windshield. That's how it worked. And we had to pay for it, which might have been the best economic lesson I got in all of college, just for the record, right? Choices have consequences. 
Now think about it though for a minute. How many factors had to be just right to hit our target? What would happen if there was more water in the balloon? It would have not gone far enough. What if there was less? Probably would have gone further. What if there was more or less tension in the launcher? What if the angle was different? What if we were up in Colorado where the air was different? Like you start to think about it. There are all these different factors that have to be just right to hit our target. Well, we now know that there's tons of different factors in nature, so to speak. That if the slightest change would happen, then we couldn't have a universe even capable of supporting life. The slightest change in a number of these parameters would make everything unstable and our universe incapable of supporting life. So, according to Dr. Mark Horton, he says that the balance between gravity and the expansion rate were altered by one part in one million, billion, 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 billion. There would be no galaxies, stars, planets, or life. Just one factor changed by the slightest amount imaginable. And all of a sudden, we couldn't even have galaxies and planets or life. Exquisite fine-tuning. Now, this is one example. We actually know that there are over 30 physical or cosmological parameters that must be finely tuned in order for life to be possible. In fact, there's really probably many more than this. I err on the side of stating the number conservatively, but there's probably many, many more than this that have to be fine-tuned. And these are things like the force of gravity, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, cosmological constant, etc. These are different laws that govern our universe, and the slightest change, the universe becomes inhospitable to life. Now, I just gave you one example. What happens if we take two? What are the mathematical odds that both of them would be set right where they need to be set in order to have a universe capable of supporting life? So if we take the force of gravity and the cosmological constant, what are the mathematical odds that they'd be set to have a universe capable of supporting life? Well, now the number becomes 100 million trillion 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 trillion. Now that's a big number. If you can't grasp that number, just think of our new national debt. You got it? That's how bad it is. Friends, this number is so vast, it's virtually impossible that just two of these would be set where they need to be to have a universe capable of supporting life. This is why Roger Penrose says, if we combine all the laws that must be fine-tuned, we couldn't even write down that number in full. It says it would require more zeros than the number of elementary particles in the universe. I don't have enough faith to believe this happened by chance. But what I do know when I see something fine-tuned, a very reasonable explanation is that there is a fine-tuner or a mind who has set it that way. world of physics, I think, points towards a mind. What if we go to the world of biochemistry, so from the large down to the small? Okay? Now in this, Charles Darwin famously said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly be informed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. In other words, this Darwinian model is based upon small incremental improvements over time. So any complex system must be the result of small incremental steps. So if he said if there's any complex system that 
exists, and it couldn't have been built in that fashion. This would undercut his naturalistic theory. In other words, this is what's called a criteria falsification. By the way, what would be a criteria falsification for Christianity? Finding what? The body of Jesus, which is what we're going to talk about in the next session, the evidence for the resurrection. Now, in 1996, a biochemist named Michael Behe wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box. And it sold, last I checked, over a quarter million copies, and it's an academic book, which tells you he kind of lit a fire in the way that people were thinking about this issue. Now, he's a biochemist at Lehigh University, and his book is called Darwin's Black Box. Now, why would he call his book Darwin's Black Box? Because the black box is something that's interesting, but we don't know how it works. So, for example, like a car is kind of a black box to me. I really don't know how to fix a car. A computer is a black box to me. This clicker is a black box to me. In fact, women are a black box to me. <laughs> my mom and my wife and my daughter fascinate me. I really don't have a clue what makes them tick, although I'm making steady improvements in this area. Now, the idea was, during the time of Darwin, scientists could not peer into the depths of the cell. So they assumed there must be a simple explanation for the origin of life. It must be simple. But then with the advance of technology and microscopes over time, they started peering into the cell and seeing more complexity than even the most sophisticated human systems can make today. Now, in his book, Darwin's Black Box, Behe gave a, a, an idea called irreducibly complex. A neutrally complex system is one that requires several closely matched parts in order to function, and where the removal of one of the components effectively causes the system to cease functioning. So in other words, it's a system that has multiple interworking parts. If you take one part away, how well does the system work? Zero. It doesn't work at all. So it's either all or it's none. Now, the famous example he gave, in his book, he gives cilia, and he gives a, a, a relation to blood kind of coagulation. But the famous example that he gives is a mousetrap, right? Why do we need mousetraps? Because we launched the cats. Sorry. <laughs> Bring it full circle, making sure you're with me. Now, a mousetrap, at least this kind of mousetrap, has at least five interworking parts, right? You've got the Wooden base, you got the hammer, the hold, the catch. You've got the different parts that function together. Now, if you're missing one part of this mousetrap, say you don't have the spring, how well does this work? It doesn't work at all. What if you're just missing the catch, how well does it work? Zero. You see, this kind of mousetrap, either you have all of it into working together, or you have none of it. Now, do you see how a Darwinian process couldn't build something like a mousetrap. Because imagine if you start with a wooden catch. I'm sorry, just a wooden platform. That doesn't perform any function in terms of catching mice. Say you add just a second part. What happens? Natural selection wouldn't preserve this. Natural selection would weed it out. So any simpler system couldn't function as a mousetrap, so it would be weeded out, Thus, you couldn't build it in a step-by-step -step incremental manner. Do you see the challenge, at least, that Behe raised to this traditional model? Now, of course, mousetraps are man-made. We know this. 
By the way, what does it take to build a mousetrap? It takes an idea, and then you fasten parts accordingly together to that idea. So when we look at complex systems in nature, the question is, can complex systems be built in a blind, purposeless, bottom-up process? Or does there need to be a mind or ideas that fasten nature according to that design? Do you see kind of the debate and the questions that people are asking about the natural world? Now, of course, a mousetrap, again, is man-made. The famous example that has become called, really called the poster child of intelligent design is the bacterial flagellum. Now, this is actually a whip-like tail on the back of certain bacteria that propels it through water. It propels it through water. Now, it actually can spin up to 100,000 RPMs. Like, that's remarkable. And with a quarter turn, stop and go the other direction full speed. Howard Berg of Harvard University called it the most efficient motor in the universe. But the difficulty is, a flagellum like a mousetrap has multiple parts that must be in the right place at the right time for it to function. If it's missing any of these core parts, it doesn't function. Do you see the challenge that something like a bacterial flagellum? So if you have three of the parts of flagellum, it's like a, a lifeless just whip sitting back there that performs no function and would be weeded out. So natural selection couldn't pr uh, build this in a step-by-step -step fashion. Because any simpler system has no function. So you look at it has universal joint, propeller, drive shaft, stator, rotor, and bushing. All these unique parts must be in the right place at the right time for it to work. According to David DePew, professor in, in University of Iowa, he says, I could not agree more with the claim that contemporary Darwinism lacks the models that can explain the evolution of cellular pathways and the problem of the origin of life. And he's right. So you look at something like a flagellum, and it's hard to understand how a Darwinian model could build this in a step-by-step -step fashion when it doesn't have any function until all the parts are there. Yet when you look at something like a mousetrap, which similarly doesn't function until all the parts are there, we know that it takes a mind organizing the parts to get it together. So just like the fine-tuning of the universe points towards a fine-tuner, I would argue that the engineering we see, even in the smallest systems, points towards an engineer. Now, a third example that we see in nature comes from biology. So, also in kind of the micro world, but we're going to take a different look at this. So, one of the revolutions in biology is that over the past few decades, really half century, is that biology is not just a study of physical systems, but it's a study of information at the cellular level. It's a study of information. So David Baltimore said modern biology is a science of information. So when Watson and Crick started to break down human DNA, they realized that there is information encoded in every cell in the human body. Now, how much information is in one cell in your body? By the way, think about this. If you took one cell out of your body, there's somewhere between a trillion plus cells in the body. If you take one cell out and you uncoil the DNA, do you know it would be about nine feet in length? The DNA from one cell in your body. So if you line up all the DNA in your body, 
it would go from here to the sun and back about 70 times. That's just kind of unfathomable or inconceivable, isn't it? To quote one of the greatest films of all time. How much information is in one strand of DNA? Equivalent of 8 billion letters, 500 million words, or 8,000 books. That means human DNA can still store information more effectively than the best memory stick you can buy from Radio Shack. Or did they go out of business? (laughs) But you get the point. This is why Bill Gates said, DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software we've ever created. So if you're trying to explain the entire world through a naturalistic process, do you see the difficulty this raises? How do you come up with information and this complexity at the smallest level without a mind? Now, There are a lot of attempted explanations to account for the origin of information in life. But a few years ago, I went to some of my atheist buddies and I said, hey, I'm going to take a group of high school students through an atheist book. What's the best book I should take them through? And the number one suggestion was The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. So I took a group of a dozen students through this atheist book. And past this past spring, I took six high school students through another book by a well-known atheist by the name of Sam Harris. Well, as we were getting to the point where Richard Dawkins attempts to explain the origin of life, you know what word he uses? Luck. He says, it was chance. We got lucky, and then natural selection took over. I don't know about you, but that is a profoundly unsatisfying naturalistic explanation to the complexity we see in the simplest cell and in DNA. Now, in a previous book, Richard Dawkins came up with something he called the blind watchmaker hypothesis. And the idea was, he used this thing called the monkeys typing Shakespeare theorem. He said, if you have enough monkeys, you have enough time, then eventually enough typewriters or computers, eventually these monkeys will sit down and type out all the works of Shakespeare. Now, do you see the reasoning? If you have enough time and you have enough resources, eventually anything can happen. Well, in my book, Understand Intelligent Design, uh, my co-author and I actually cite an MIT quantum computational physicist by the name of Seth Lloyd. And he's asking the question, how much can we actually quantify mathematically? I'm sorry, like how much information could arise through all the resources of the universe by chance alone? Is there enough chance to explain all the works of Shakespeare? Well, Seth Lloyd uh, computed this, and he said, essentially, all the works of chance, given the age and the size of the universe, at best could produce four lines from the works of Shakespeare. To be or not to be, that is the question, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer. So a number of years ago, some scientists decided to put the monkeys typing Shakespeare theorem to the test. So they put some monkeys in a cage to see if they would sit there and, you know, old computers, start typing out Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet. Well, first monkey picked up a rock and bashed the computer. (laughs) Ensuing monkeys went on the top and went to the bathroom on the computer. But before you mock this experiment, these monkeys, in the weeks they were in there, actually produced seven pages of written text. 
these monkeys produced seven pages of written text. A string of A's, L's, M's, and J's, and an occasional S. Not a single word. Now, in case you don't have enough reading material for summer, you can actually purchase the literary works of these monkeys because they've been put into a volume called Notes Towards the Complete Works of Shakespeare. You can actually buy that at Amazon.com. I kid you not. I'm dead serious. <laughs> They'll sell you anything these days at Amazon. Now, to me, it sure seems like not only does this raise a challenge for Darwin, this naturalistic theory. But if we go walking on the beach and you come across letters in the sand that say John loves Mary at Capo Beach, none of you stop and go, whoa, crazy waves here. Wow, the earthquakes must have spelled this out. Look what the crabs did. None of you would say that. You know this couldn't have been explained naturalistically, but there must be an intelligence or a mind to write and engrave these physical etchings because it contains information. Well, Stephen Myers, Cambridge trained philosopher of science, says whenever we find information, we know the causal story of how that information arose. We always find that it arose from an intelligent source. And he's right. If you have a blog, trace it back to a blogger. A text and it's legible, take, trace it back to a texter. A book to an author. A magazine article to a journalist. Well, look, when we go out into the natural world and we look inside the cell, we don't find the equivalent of drink Coke or John Loves Mary. We find more information more sophisticated than anything the smartest people on the planet today can produce with all our technology. I don't have enough faith to believe this could happen by chance or by some purely naturalistic process. In fact, a number of years ago, one of the leading atheists in the world, his name was Anthony Flew. He died in 2010. He first wrote arguments against the existence of God when he was in, at Oxford in the 50s before C.S. Lewis at this time. Died in 2010. In 2007, he wrote a book called There Is a God, Why the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. And the New York Times kind of did a hit piece to dismiss him and said he's old, he's lost his mind, but that was completely false. What he wrote, interestingly enough, was what I think the DNA material has done is show that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements together. The enormous complexity by which the results were achieved looks to me like the work of intelligence. And I think he's right. The fine-tuning of the universe suggests a mind or a fine-tuner. The engineering in the cell points towards an engineer. And the information in DNA points towards an author of life. Friends, I really believe for those with eyes to see and ears to hear, God has made himself known. He's not going to force people to believe. But if we're open to it, there are signs of intelligence in the natural world. Like the psalmist wrote 3,000 years ago, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his majesty. Day by day they speak before speech. Night by night they display knowledge. Now, I grew up in a Christian home, and my father, some of you have asked me about already, Josh McDowell has been doing this for a long time. I went through a doubting period. And one of the things I remember hearing the skeptics say, if God exists, why didn't he make it more obvious that he existed? Like, why didn't he write in the moon, Jesus lives? I'm like, well, what language would he write it in, for one? 
right? And what about all the illiterate people would say, God hates people that can't read, but that's a separate issue. <laughs> that I struggled with this for a while. And then when I started to study the DNA, I realized with DNA and the information coded therein, it's as if God autographed every cell. Now, the scientific evidence can't bring us to the scriptures or Christianity being true, but it challenges this naturalistic model and asks the question, is there a God who has revealed himself to us? And I hope you'll hang around the next session because I'm going to be speaking on the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. That not only is there intelligence in the world, but this intelligent God has distinctly revealed himself through the person of Jesus. I hope you'll be here personally. If not, at least go watch it online. The dads can wait to have lunch later. This is important stuff. All right? Hey, in the back, a couple resources that may help. I helped my dad update his classic book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. My father wrote this years ago when he was trying to disprove Christianity. Ended up being surprised by the evidence. Well, we updated it with just a huge team this past, uh, about a year and a half ago. And I asked my dad, I said, Dad, how does the evidence compare now to when you set out in the 50s to disprove Christianity? He said, son, there's a tsunami of evidence for the Christian faith. Friends, we have nothing to be afraid of by challenges to our faith. But given how much information is accessible to this generation on their phones, we need to be ready with an answer and teach them how to think. So that book is back there, and then one that just came out this past month, so the next generation will know. For any parent... For a grandparent, anybody who looks, I am thrilled to see the students you're taking on this trip. 34 groups. That's phenomenal. But friends, it's a practical guide for parents, for any caring adult to say what a practical way to have conversations and pass on our faith to this next generation that has more challenges growing up right now than you and I ever dreamed of. So I'm grateful to be here. Hope you'll stay for the next couple sessions. I'm going to sneak to the back. Would love to say hi, shake your hand, uh, sign a book if that's helpful. But more importantly, thanks for having me this morning. Right. God bless. <laughs>